filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues, including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. Uh, I got scolded at the store. Ooh, what happened at the store? Um, I have a like a little uh, pot for plants that has become a change jar uh, to empty my pockets uh, when I come in from spending money like a good consumer. And it got full, so today I took it with me to the store to to uh, one of those uh, change things. I had to go to the store anyway, and I didn't feel like making another stop. Um, so the thing spits out a receipt, and it's like, please take this to any cashier in this store and renew it today. I said, okay, I got straight into a line and I waited behind someone who had like a full cart of groceries. And then I got up there and I gave it to the lady and she was like, she looked at it for a minute and she was like, you should have taken this over there to the, to the customer service. And I was like, well, it says any cashier. It doesn't mention customer service. And the machine also on the screen says, take it to a cashier. And she looked at it for a while and she looked at me and she was like, I've never done this and was like very unhappy with me. <laughs> um, so then she she tried doing it and couldn't get it to work and went to the customer service. And I could hear that because they weren't that far away and I could hear their conversation. She was like, why do they always do that? And then she came over and like very huffily, the customer service woman came over and huffily took care of it and was like, you need to come to customer service next time. I was like, I, I only followed the only instructions I was given on what to do. You guys could easily put like a piece of paper. If it's if it's that much of a hassle, this happens all the time. Put a note. Just say, look, don't go to the cashier. They will scold you. Ben, have you been scolded recently? Mm, I don't think so. I think I've mostly avoided scolding by mostly just staying inside and not interacting with other humans. That's um, that plays. <laughs> That's one strategy. It's, I think the closest. The closest I've come to getting scolded is by a driver who very nearly um, killed me in a crosswalk because he was in a really big hurry to turn left before the oncoming traffic got there. And even though there were a few of us in the crosswalk, was, crossing with the, with the, we were not jaywalking. We were crossing with the light. Right. Doing uh, what you're supposed to do. Yes. And he got really mad that we were there. I mean, there we were inconveniencing him. Pedestrians should all just be run over. That's obvious. Yeah, not, not. It, some, it took me. That's my like, legal advice. It of took me like five or six years to modify my pedestrian habits once I was no longer living on a college campus because on a college campus, pedestrians always have the right of way no matter what, essentially. Like, except to just, Jimmy John's cyclists. Jimmy John's delivery cyclists. Oh, we only got them after everything. I was done at Maryland. Oh, uh, we I had those. That, it, it was built like the next year, so I never dealt with them. Yeah, we had Jimmy John's at Purdue, and okay. they they dominated everything. Like you always yielded to the Jimmy John cyclist, no matter what the light said. And then pedestrians taking, would just yeah. roam anywhere. They were, they were probably taking pedestrian rules and being like, "But I'm on a bike, so I can intimidate people." Essentially, no, they weren't even following pedestrian rules. They were just oh. they were see, in their I, own. See, universe. I was used to it at, at Maryland. Like, if a pedestrian wants to wander, like take a very slight diagonal the long way across the street and where they're almost walking just straight up the street, but I eventually drift into the opposite sidewalk. You just have to tolerate it. If you're a driver in, in a car, um, the solution of course was to just start yelling absurdities at people. Not mean, never don't, you don't yell mean things at people when you drive through college campuses, but you yell things that are puzzling. Cause then they'll usually, it kind of snaps them out of it. Like, Oh, I should probably just get out of this car's way. Cause the person's a weird enough to just start yelling at me and it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, the best one, a buddy of mine did that a lot. Not, not, it's just at other drivers and also at pedestrians, but not, not for any reason. But his, his favorite thing to yell was, there's a T-Rex coming. Raptors are everywhere. And he would yell this in a panicked voice, uh, hanging out the passenger side of a car. That'll, that'll snap people out of their uh, <laughs> bad pedestrian reverie. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Bad Pedestrian and Black and Red United podcast. I am Adam Taylor, joined as always by Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley. We're all from blackandredunited.com. 
where we write about DC United, the U.S. national teams, Major League Soccer, and whatever else we care to. We've got a good show for you tonight. DC United is entering their final week of preseason before the games actually start counting. So that's kind of nice. We're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about the U.S. women's national team's Olympic qualifying run, which so far has them unscathed and blowing teams out for the most part. Not entirely, but for the most part. We're going to close the conversation with uh, the one and only Brian Dunseth, uh, who will help us preview DC United's Champions League tilt against Carataro. Before we do anything, though, Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, well, since we're, we're now one week, uh, literally the game is like we would be part of the way through the game one week from now. Um, and in the Champions League, so it's a bigger deal, so you have to class it up a little. And uh, I've been on a beer kick for months now, and it, it's time to class it up. It's time to take it to another level. So I have gone to uh, an old favorite uh, on this show. Our listeners, some of them have probably already figured out what's coming. It's Cavassier. <laughs> well done. I am also drinking a uh, an aged spirit. Uh, I'm drinking it on a single rock. It is a really interesting whiskey from... Uh, Arizona from Tucson called Whiskey Del Bac Dorado. It is a single malt, which is, uh, you know, it's the, the grain involved is all barley, just like uh, scotches. But it, it, the barley is uh, malted over uh, mesquite smoke, essentially. So it has this almost kind of uh, mezcal quality to it because the cactuses for mezcal are smoked over or thrown on coals actually. And have, that's where the smoke comes from rather than from barrel aging. And, and that's the same thing here, but it's a single malt rather than a mezcal. So it's got some extra complexity going on there. It's really interesting and weird drink. And I think I like it. I'm pretty sure that I like it, but I'm not totally sure that I like it. It's, I, I need to start making cocktails with it. Uh, my dad gave it to me over new year's and I'm finally getting around to, to sampling it again now. Maybe if you have cocktail ideas, uh, email the podcast, filibusterpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me or something and let me know. Please don't just tell him to edit to soda. Like, don't tell him. No, that's not a cocktail. Um, Highballs will be mocked and not accepted. Let's let's talk at least, like, three steps in the process. And opening a bottle does not count. It's not a real step. Ben, now that we've got our PSA out of the way and you don't have to make one today, Snobbery. what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a very common cocktail for most, but this is just the first time I've ever made one of these for myself. Uh, I made myself a daiquiri. I got some rum at the ABC store today because I wanted something a little different and just added some simple syrup, some lime juice, shook it over ice. It's just a simple, delicious daiquiri. Excellent. Nicely done. I like that you're, you're rebelling against the, the winter. Yes, exactly. February, but I'm drinking a daiquiri anyway. I mean, it got up to almost 60 today here in Richmond, so... Yeah, it, it after, was... After, uh, sno- after snowing yesterday. Wishful thinking. Ben didn't see a shadow today, so it must mean spring is here. I mean, I definitely didn't... I didn't notice my shadow. It didn't register in my brain, so maybe <laughs> I am a groundhog, actually, and not a human soccer writer. I mean, I don't see any evidence to the contrary. Motion passes. (laughs) DC United, as I said earlier, has entered their final week of preseason. They will start playing meaningful soccer next week in Mexico uh, in the CONCACAF Champions League. They're in the final stage of preseason, three games down in Florida uh, as part of the Suncoast Classic. In the first game, they beat the Tampa Bay Rowdies 1-0 on a goal from Fabian Espindola. Uh, I, I want to talk less about the finish, which was a nice, very fobby kind of finish um, with his left foot low and across the goal. But I want to talk about the assist, which came from brand new men- member of the black and red uh, on loan from Boca Juniors playmaker named uh, Luciano Acosta. Uh, we talked about him last week. He is a diminutive player, five foot three. Uh, only 21 years old, known as the Jewel, La Jolla. Um, 
And and the, the key part of the assist here that I want to talk about is not the pass itself, but what Acosta did to get the ball for the pass. He he <laughs> he was ready to beg, borrow, and barter uh, to steal a line from Hamilton because we have to force that on Jason every chance we get. Well, you and also the rest of America. <laughs> 300, it is 300-something million people against Jason, as always. So Acosta... There was a there was a Tampa Bay player trying to shield the ball out for a goal kick. Acosta basically pulled his arm and just yanked on him until he fell over. And then Acosta stopped the ball from rolling out of bounds. Unless maybe he didn't. It was hard to tell from the camera angle. W- kept playing. The whistle was never blown. He walked the ball back in and passed it to Espindola, who scored. Jason, I think you loved this assist even more than I did. Why? Yeah. Well... It- this is the thing with attacking play. Attacking play is about taking calculated risks. Um, we see it with strikers trying to, to just cheat offside just a bit, but get away with it. Um, we see players making a move that may or may not work. They might get tackled. Um, crosses into the box are risky. They're, it's a long pass. By definition, it's harder to complete. Um, this is a different kind of calculated risk. Acosta, earlier in the game, uh, maybe, maybe in the first five minutes even, had pressured the same player, uh, King, the right back, and stripped him of the ball and nearly scored a goal himself. Um, and that's the kind of thing you remember uh, when you're on the field, that you know that the first time you applied pressure to somebody, they weren't even able to do like the uh, harried clearance. He just lost the ball. Um, and so you start thinking to yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pressure this guy again. Every time that we're in a position to press and this guy's on the ball, I'm going to go in hard and try and see what I can do. Um, in this case, King wasn't prepared for Acosta to keep running because Acosta didn't start fouling until he, he tried to run around King on the end line and get a, get a poke in basically just to keep the ball alive or maybe win a corner kick. Um, King realized that did just enough to shift his body to, to keep Acosta from getting a touch on the ball before it was going to roll out. So Acosta on his way around, just grabbed the shirt sleeve and pulled, um, and he did pull. It wasn't like his. he happened to land his arm there and was just sort of falling and grabbing. He grabbed him with he, both hands. He intentionally grabbed at the shirt to pull the player off balance, and he succeeded. Um, and the rest of the Rowdies just sort of were like, well, that's clearly a foul, and stopped just long enough to leave a cost to the opening. Uh, when Espindola struck the ball, he had a guy diving in for a slide tackle to try and save the prevent a shot. Um, so the window that all of this opened was a very slight window, um, but that's what good players do. Sometimes good players, they do they pull off a move, they nutmeg somebody like Patrick Niarco did uh, later in the game, or actually knows before the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's something like this where you kind of get away with a foul. In this case, it's a 100% it was a foul, but the referee doesn't call it. Um, we see target strikers do this all the time. Um, the center back starts to go up for a jump and the, you'll just give a little bump in the lower back and it's definitely a foul, but you throw off the player's jump and all of a sudden, um, the guy's off balance. He misses the header and you're off to the races. We see people do it to goalkeepers, um, players set picks on corners. This is like that. This is, um, a a smart player making a smart calculated risk because otherwise that ball is going out for a goal kick. So if you pull the guy's jersey and get called for a foul in that spot, it's just going to be a free kick from that spot. Like you're not giving away anything by trying it. Um, and maybe you catch the other team not prepared. Maybe they're, they stop for half a second thinking, well, that's clearly a foul. And then you score a goal. Um, so it's a good sign for a player that new to the team to have the, the bravado, the courage to give it a try because they're, I mean, when you're new to a team, you don't necessarily want to, be taking risks left and right because you start to look like a crazy person. And especially on a team like DC United, that is generally not going to take as many attacking risks as some other teams around the league. Um, you want to make sure your risks actually amount to something. And so he made it work. Uh, he got a goal. Out of, he created a goal out of it. And it's it's a good sign of things to come. It's also a good sign that someone his size is playing physical with uh, he's not he's not letting the physical play of American soccer push him around he's decided he's going to be the aggressor um which is a good way for him to not be a victim essentially and it's also a good sign for uh for him in the sense that dc united uh international signings don't typically have that sort of uh aggressive streak and that are 
aren't willing to uh, mix it up like that. And so the fact that he is hopefully bodes better for him than previous DC United international signings. Elsewhere in the midfield, uh, we have we saw the Nick DeLeon as a central midfielder experiment continue. Um, I, I heard very different things from different people about his performance in this game. And I think it's some of it depends on whether you think he belongs there before this game and some of it or, or, or not. Um, ben, what did you make of, of Nicky's performance in the center of the park? Um, I thought he was fine. I didn't think he was spectacular or anything, but... I thought that he was uh, fairly efficient and did a good job of just keeping the ball moving and uh, making sure that play continued. It's obvious that he needs more time there if he's going to be a central midfielder. He's not quite there yet. But I really do think that he's showing enough that if Ben Olsen needs him there in the middle for an extended period of time, if he can beat out somebody like Marcelo Sarvas, which I don't think he can at this point, but maybe uh, a little later in the season, maybe he can, that he's an actual viable alternative in the, in the center of the park. I mean, he's been playing in the center for all of three weeks where he's been a wide player for five years. So it's going to take a little time, but I think he's showing the requisite progress that he might actually be such a viable candidate. Yeah, in, in, I'm interested to see what, what Ben Olsen does, especially with Acosta on the field, because um, presumably Halsty is, is going to start as one of, as probably the most defensive member of the midfield. And it makes sense to have a linking guy. Sarvis can be that guy, but he might also have a tendency to, to sit a little deeper. Uh, I haven't seen enough of it, or it's been too long since I, I saw a lot of him to know what his game is at this point did, as he's gotten a little older. Colorado Rapids last year? I, <laughs> hand on my heart, I did not. <laughs> I, I, I actually not did much. only only to figure out what the hell was going on. Like, they, they became a puzzle to me um, more than anything. <laughs> I never solved it. I'm not going to say that I, I have a theory on the Rapids last year. It never made any sense, but it was like, I gotta see if there's a method here. Um, but what it no, applies with, with Sarvas, what it did illustrate is that he shouldn't, he's not really a competitor for, for the sole defensive midfield role. He shouldn't be the most defensive player in your midfield. Um, so if that's what, if that's the look, if it becomes Sarvas and De Leon, I'd be a little concerned. Um, I, I would need to see some proof that that's going to be better than having Halsty on the field. Uh, I don't think that's the best use for Sarvas. And I, I agree with Ben that De Leon's still a work in progress. There are signs he, he did get better from the second game to this game. He, he, his defensive reaction times were better. And that was the main thing for me. Um, that and his, he wasn't caught in possession in DC's half during that, that, that I can recall. There was no obvious, like bad giveaway, which he did have one, uh, against Sodra. So those are elements of progress, but I think, the thing that last year in Colorado, Sarvas played in a midfield triangle. He played all three of the roles. He was the, the, the number six, the eight, and even the 10. He's not a 10 and he's, he's not a 10 at all. Um, and he's not really a six either. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, if Olson likes the daily own in central midfield experiment enough to actually start him because then it is choosing between Sarvas in not an ideal role or Halsty. Um, I don't think it's going to come up in the Champions League because Lamar Nagel is cup tied. So I think we're more likely to, if, if someone's going to start on the left, it's either going to be Rolf or De Leon. Um, but I think the more, the experienced and more defensive combination is going to win out there. Um, which means Holstein and Sarvas, unless one of them is injured. Um, but going forward, it is going to be interesting to see how, how Olsen, how much Olsen, uh, likes what he sees from De Leon because that's ultimately what's going to decide whether he keeps playing in the middle or if he's just sort of a midfield utility man. We mentioned that uh, Olsen did use a midfield triangle in this one with Acosta ahead of Halstein De Leon in the first half. And then uh, for most of the second half, we saw Colin Martin in Acosta's spot ahead of uh, two central midfielders. It was definitely a 4-4-1-1, not a... Yeah. In, not the in vogue. I think I uh, will say that three one. 
I will say late in the game, it sort of became a four, two, three, one when Martin moved out to the left. Right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That was the game kind of got a little stretched and a little ragged at that point anyway. So and that was, was only, that wasn't a long, long stretch. That no. was, that was only a short no. part of the second half for it, the vast majority of this game. United were in a four, four, one, one, which is a pretty easy evolution from the four, four, two, especially the four, four, two with the spindle and Rolf. Right. up top being very fluid and dropping deep. And Jason, do you think that will be the default? Uh, I, I think it certainly will be when Acosta is on the field. Do you think that I, I know I've asked this question on the show in the past. Do you think that Olsen might actually stick with this even when uh, Acosta is not available for whatever reason? or when he wants to sit Acosta, maybe putting either Julian Boucher, who played the position uh, when Colin Martin wasn't there, or Colin Martin uh, in that spot in the hole? Uh, we might. I don't think that's going to be his first uh, look when Acosta isn't available, but I think that there are going to be times where that comes up, um, which is good because I think everyone wants to see a player like Colin Martin getting minutes in that role rather than out on the wing. Um, Buescher is a very promising player. We didn't take him for no good reason or because his salary is Generation Adidas. That wasn't the reason they took him. It was because he's an excellent soccer player. He's a very gifted passer of the ball. And it should um, say he's also a candidate to start next to Halstey or possibly in that. Right. That would role. be that would be a more aggressive uh, look. But, yeah, he can play that role, too. Um, so he, he doesn't have to push Martin and Acosta aside to get on the field. Um, but I do think the fact that the four four one one as it was played was so close to how the four four two worked when Rolf and Espindolo were the pairing last year that I think the the adjustment without Acosta will be just to go four four two ish with um uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw something similar to what we saw in this game where Espindola sometimes dropped underneath Acosta. They didn't leave that job to one person. Um, and I think if it's a Rolf Espindola pairing, we'll see a similar sort of thing. The the line between what they look like with Acosta and what they look like with Rolf is going to be very, very narrow, um, almost to the point of it not even really. I, I don't think that Olsen probably cares one bit. Um, he probably just says, Acosta, you're underneath, Espindola, you're ahead, um, rather than defining the roles as you're the attacking midfielder and you're the forward. Um, right. And that's how that's how Rolf and Espindola did it. There, there was clearly a lot of freedom for those two to exchange positions and move around as a group. Um, I, I do think that with Martin and Buescher, it would be a little more rigid. Um, I think Acosta, at least on this evidence, is a roving player. He gets all over the field. He's not a guy that's just going to stay in, in the center, um, which is good. It adds an element of unpredictability um, to an attack that, that needed that. They need a central player that is going to take up positions that don't, that don't really uh, go with the, the standard uh, expectation. Um, but overall, I think it is going to be pretty much a very, a very small change from four, four, two, but you know, last season we saw a very small change from, and we are going to talk about this game again, the Vancouver game. Um, <laughs> Take a drink, where, everybody. Where we saw a formation that on paper looked like a four, one, three, two, and then very gradually changed to four, one, four, one in defense. Um, and, and it's one of those things where in defensive phases, it looks like five midfielders and in attacking phases, it looks like two forwards and four midfielders. So um, I don't think Olsen's too caught up on formations. He's not that kind of coach. Um, I think he's caught up on roles and, and getting players to work together well. And from there, it's it, the formation is a little less important as long as as long as the defensive phases stay organized, I don't think he's going to be too caught up in whether Acosta is a second forward or an attacking midfielder. That makes sense. The The next question is a knock-on. It's when Chris Rolf does get onto the field, where is it? Because Acosta is going to be yeah. in the center. He He's not going to play left midfield. And especially if you have the the outside midfielders a little bit deeper, like you do in a 4-4-1-1, what does that mean for Chris Rolf, who maybe can't do all the running on a weekend week out basis that he used to be able to do. I don't know that we're going to answer that right now. So I'm just going to leave the question hanging out there and turn our attention to goalkeepers where we saw a, a really good, I was somewhat surprised second half performance from Benjamin Kirsten. 
um, a, a trialist from from Germany who I I think I, I said it in in our minutes tracker looked more like Bill Hamid than anybody else on that DC United has has run through this preseason. And I'm not talking about a shot stopping ability, although that was on pretty good display. Aggressiveness and the quickness of his decision to come off his line and his ability to cut down the angle was really impressive, I thought. So Ben, that was a really small sample size, but do you think he could have overtaken Chris Kanopka with that performance for a roster spot? I mean, I think it's definitely possible. He definitely showed more in his 45 minutes than uh, Kanopka has shown in his. Uh, part of that is the difference in competition, uh, obviously. But I think it all will come down to international roster spots. And if DC United wants to spend one, and, and salary cap probably, I would assume that Chris Kanopka is going to come cheaper than Benjamin Kirsten. But... All things being equal, I'm sure they would prefer, well, not, I'm not sure, but I, I would think they would prefer to have Kirsten just because I think he's a step above Kanopka. He's a better challenger for, he could be a better challenger for Andrew Dykstra and maybe even could surpass Dykstra. I don't think many of us think that Kanopka is a definite step above Dykstra, but Kirsten might be. And so... It's, 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 that's all part of the soup that they're going to have to take into consideration when they're, uh, figuring out how the end of this roster, uh, figures out, uh, um, based on all of MLS's strange rules and roster spots and such. Jason, any thoughts before we take a break? Uh, I mean, I would, I would just caution against reading a ton into it. It was a pretty impressive game, uh, from Kirsten making some saves as a defense featuring an academy player. Um, and later, uh, a completely unfamiliar group. Um, and two guys who aren't fullbacks playing fullback. Right. You know, uh, Paul Torres playing fullback. That's not really what he does. Um, Miguel Aguilar. Right. Miguel Aguilar was back there. Um, the center backs at the end were the academy player and Constantine Colocatronis, who all past signs on the internet point to him being a forward or a midfielder, not a center back. Um, so those guys struggled with, Tommy Heineman, who used to play in MLS and is just basically a kind of a, a chilled out Stephen Lenhart sort of player. Um, so they, they with the hair, right? Um, they struggled with the physicality from him, um, and it caused a lot of it, it. United gave up a lot of chances as the half wore on, um, but Kirsten's recognition of things was very good. He was he looks faster off his line and faster in general than um, Kanopka, but how much? Is he going to be able to do organization-wise? You know, if English isn't something that he speaks much of, then that's a a big problem for a goalkeeper in MLS, especially with a back four where um, none of United starters have any experience in Germany. They don't speak any German that I know of. Maybe maybe Bobby Boswell took some German in high school. I don't know. But um, that that could be a deciding factor. Um, That and obviously the international spot is a factor. Um, Kirsten played in, I think the second division there, which is a higher wage rate, most likely than, um, he would, you would expect for Kanopka who spent most of his career as an MLS backup. Um, but who knows, you know, Kanopka was unfortunate against Sodra in that the goals that were conceded were unsavable. Like he, no one was going to get to the shots that were going in. Um, so it's it's a little. I think a lot of this is going to come down to what happens away from our eyes during training. Um, I think that's where they're going to make that decision much more than the games. But that being said, Kirsten did everything he could with that game, um, short of I guess scoring a goal himself. Uh, he did pretty much everything that could be done as a trialist goalkeeper who's only been in with the team for a few days. So you have to give it up to him, and and maybe he's pushed himself ahead. But you know. We, for all we know, his training session the next day could have been terrible. So it, this is when we'll find out what happened after they announce which player they're going to sign, basically. He was in the third division in Germany, the second okay. second division in the Netherlands. Okay. Well, okay, so his, his wage demands might not – they might be in line with Kanopka's. So maybe finances aren't going to be a factor, but the international spot probably still is a, a thing. He's got to beat Kanopka by enough to justify using it. Yes, 
And with that, we will take a quick break. Stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Hey, Ben, you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show? Well, and, yeah. And, not, and you never, ever use the term correctly? Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, They have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, Fine. So... Ehrlich Law Office, it's, a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So, guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We're going to talk quickly now about the U.S. women's national team and their Olympic qualifying run. They they made it unscathed through the first part of CONCACAF Olympic qualifying uh, into the semifinals where they will play Trinidad and Tobago on Friday, February 19th. Um, their most recent game was a... Dun, 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 dun. I see what you did there. Was a 10 nothing win over Puerto Rico. Five of the goals coming from the Washington Spirit's own Crystal. Dun, 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 Crystal Dunn. Uh, a record tying five goals and an assist to go along with them. Uh, she was had a direct hand in more than half of the United States' 10 goals. Uh, ben, she definitely took advantage of the opportunity to start, even against a... <laughs> a team that's not very strong. Yeah, I mean, you could only play the team that's ahead of you, and there were definitely plenty of players who were trying to show their best towards Jill Ellis to try and convince her to move some players out of her rotation and maybe embrace some youth. But Crystal Dunn did a fantastic job. She's already been, uh, she's already established herself in the uh, game day roster for the USWNT, but I think she hopefully went a long way towards establishing herself, if not a starting role, at least as a one of the first players off the bench role, a key sub role uh, coming into the Olympics, and then hopefully can turn that into a uh, starting role, a dominant role moving forward after the Olympics. I mean, I think most of us would agree we would love to see a strike partner, a frontline partnership of uh, Kristen Press and Crystal Dunn, but I highly doubt that that's what Jill Ellis is actually going to do in the Olympics, despite the protestations of filibuster. It turns out Jill Ellis, probably not a listener. (laughs) Um, If anybody listening to this is close to Jill Ellis and can surreptitiously put the podcast on her iPhone, I'm not saying you should definitely do that, but I'm not saying anything to the contrary. Jason, um, what else has stood out for you uh, in this qualifying run? I guess the main thing, I mean, the the goal blitz against Costa Rica to start the tournament. Um, Costa Rica is a, a pretty decent team. They actually finished second in the group um, with their upset of Mexico uh, in the game before the U.S. last night. Um, so they actually have a shot. They, they're going to be playing Canada in all likelihood, unless Canada lost by like 11 goals tonight. Um, so they're, they're going to play Canada. They're probably not going to beat them, which means they're probably not going to the Olympics, but um, it's a, it's a step forward for Costa Rica, um, against Mexico that that's kind of Mexico had been third in CONCACAF for a long time. And for Costa Rica to push them aside is, is great for them. Uh, and the U S still managed to score three goals on them in the first 15 minutes of th- that game. Um, so they took an opponent that was going to be defending deep and being organized and they just completely ruined that plan for them by scoring early and often and just being super aggressive and also smart about it. The The goal they scored after 12 seconds was a rehearsed movement that they had worked on in training, uh, at least according to Alex Morgan directly after the game. So that's the kind of thing that you have to do against um, bunker teams. You have to find a different way about your to go about your business, and they did it. Um, on the other hand, the game against Mexico 
was not encouraging. It was very slow, a lot of forced passes. There were a lot of passes that got to the right player but didn't get to where that player needed it, and so the attack would just die with every pass. You'd have a player having to lunge just to keep the ball and then having to take a second touch to corral it, and then all of a sudden Mexico is back in shape. Um, so that game was very, very frustrating. Um, it was good that enough players rested some against um, uh, Costa Rica since that game was 48 hours after they played Mexico because CONCACAF, uh, if you think they're bad on the men's side, wait till you see how they treat the women's game. Um, they, they're even more CONCACAF than ever. Um, but, you know, they against Puerto Rico, against a team that is – purely building for one day aspiring to be in Costa Rica's position, essentially, um, using a lot of teenagers, and most of their players couldn't buy an, a drink after that game um, if they had wanted to. So um, they made sure to make that fitness advantage count. They scored three goals in, like, less than three minutes or on the hour mark. Um, you know, and that that's a good sign that when you tire a team out that you're making it worth something. You're not just tiring them out and maybe you get grab one. Um, you might be able to really punish a team if you can just tire them out enough. Uh, that's what they're going to face in the semifinal. Um, they're going to face a team they have a massive fitness advantage over that's going to defend deep, but that probably won't be so susceptible to the uh, the, the sneak attack like Costa Rica was. Um, so go, going forward, I think it's hard to read too much into it just because they haven't really played anyone that they shouldn't be beating by a significant margin. Um, Mexico gave it their best, but also the U S just played a bad game that night. We're probably lucky that they saved it for that one rather than in the semifinal where you're going to get a team that's amped up knowing that, that if they could just pull this one win off there in the Olympics, um, that would be a, a, a pretty bad timing. It would be very bad timing to play your worst game. So hopefully that was by far the worst game because otherwise they should be able to stroll. If they they can put in a B minus effort in the semifinal, they're going to go to the Olympics. And with that, we will now turn our attention to the CONCACAF Champions League, uh, where DC United will be playing Karataro. To help us preview DC United playing Karataro, Karataro, we, we, we're going to bring the debate on air, I think. Uh, they play next Tuesday in quarterfinals of the CONCACAF Champions League down in Mexico, 8 p.m. on Fox Sports 1 and Fox's streaming platforms. Calling that game will be Brian Dunseth, who is here to help us preview. Dunny, thanks for joining the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I know you haven't had a chance to put a drink in front of you just yet, but what will you be drinking <laughs> afterward? Uh, yeah, I think I've got to do like a, what is it, like an anchor steam or something like that. I got to do some type of IPA. Uh, as soon as I have the opportunity, I got in late on my flight last night from Salt Lake and had a 6 a.m. call time today to call the, uh, who was it? The Fenerbahce locomotive Moscow game and then a serious show this afternoon and then LA traffic. So I, I'm looking forward to at least a beer at a bare minimum, uh, a vodka tonic as the opportunity presents itself. <laughs> Next question. Do you sleep? <laughs> or is it just not, not as much Manuel Miranda roaming around the the sleepless world. Yeah, not not as much as I probably should. Uh, but with with two little nuggets at home and a, and a wife, and as much as I travel, I, I have to get my soccer in uh, whenever that that possibly can happen. So, a couple of five a.m. wake up calls and a, a lot of coffee uh, over the past three or four days. We're all taking notes, man. <laughs> So I'm like, I, I trust me. I know how lucky I am. Uh, for for a second, I I won't ever regret it. So it's all good. Be able to talk about soccer and watch soccer. I don't think you can ever go wrong in this world. On that note, unlike the rest of us on this show, you've actually played soccer in stadiums in Mexico. As DC United uh, get ready to to go down for this game, what's going through the player's head and what kind of preparation are they doing to get ready for this kind of hostile crowd that is is really different than what you see in the U.S.? Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be fascinating, uh, I think, in terms of kind of the approach uh, for Ben Olsen uh, and company. I mean, the, the obvious factor is that they're, they're used to heading into kind of quote-unquote hostile environments and being on the road and they, they have the, the history 
um, in terms of the club and in dealing with South American teams. And uh, if you look at the the home stadium um, for Carretado or Carretro, however you want to say it, uh, you know, this is uh, this is a stadium that has a long and rich history. Uh, the field is wide and open. Uh, the fan base is highly, highly educated. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, this is, this is a team who last year, you know, kind of finishing in a decent spot in sixth place and kind of this year kind of struggling in 13th place so far after six games. Um, you know, I think the perception from the outside looking in for those that aren't aware is that this should be a manageable game, um, in a, in a lot of ways, but for DC United, Continuing to build the full fitness, coming in in, in a kind of a fastly put together preseason, as you're continuing to introduce players uh, like Patrick Niarco and Lamar Nagel, and now the signing of Luciano Acosta, which I'm a huge, huge fan of this signing uh, in particular. Um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of what Victor Manuel Vucetich puts on the field uh, for Cadetro and. Should uh, Jonathan Bornstein and Luis Gill get significant minutes in that game, it'll be interesting, especially for a team that, that Friday night is, is playing host to Tigres, as both Mexican clubs are facing uh, D.C. and Real Salt Lake the following week. So you mentioned Carretero's having some issues with their form. They have six points in as many games uh, in this Clausura season. What's going on with them? Uh, we have one guy on the site who who keeps saying that their back line can be had uh, in in our private chats. Is is that a fair take, or are is there more going on? Yeah, I, I think it's still a team that, as it continues to get healthy, um, it, it will continue to, I think, evolve and show. And I, and I think it's as you said, six games in, things get you know really dicey if if results don't go your way. But Victor Manuel Vucetich is by far one of the most successful managers in Mexico. And he was a part of that run for Monterey that, that lifted a few, uh, CONCACAF Champions League titles. Um, you know, when, when I, when I look at this back line and in particular, you look at, you know, the two Argentines, Martinez and Dominguez across and you had Bornstein who was pulled after just 55 minutes and that two one loss on the road at Cruz Azul. Uh, Escuela is the, the number 18. Um, is, is a wide right player, but is kind of a hybrid of an outside back. Uh, listen, results haven't, haven't gone their way, but I think it's also important to kind of recognize while, you know, the back four may be opportunities to be had, um, offensively. Um, the question is, do you have guys athletically that can get in behind and, and stretch the field? Uh, and with DC United, you can do that through the wide spots, through Nagel and, and through Niako. Uh, but you can't necessarily do that through Fabian or, or Sabo being the point striker. Um, so the, the, the reality is I think it's just a big unknown. Uh, it's a big unknown to, to see exactly what Benny Olsen has available to him, uh, who's going to be 100% fit and available to go on the road in Mexico and, and play a, a very tactically astute and aware 90 minutes. Um, and, and what kind of assets does he have off the bench that could be difference makers that, you know, physically can cause a lot of problems to kind of throw his back line. Uh, Brian, my, my question, since you brought him up is about, um, Victor Manuel Vucetich in general. Um, since you've called, I'm, I'm guessing roughly about a billion Champions League games. <laughs> um, and I, I've, I'm, I'm one of the people that is like, it, when I can't stay up and watch it, I'm DVRing it and I'm watching it. I get up early to watch it before work. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of hooked on that competition, but, uh, Vuzetic has been in it more often than not. Um, what can our fans expect from him tactically? What, what is his general way of approaching games? Well, I, I think a lot of it uh, is, and, and this is probably the most obvious statement any soccer fan's ever going to hear, but he, what he does tactically is all dependent on what he has available to him. Um, and he's never shied away from uh, going with kind of what he considers uh, his, his classic four in the back and two outside backs that love to get forward. Uh, two guys at times that are, kind of dedicated holding, but at the same time have the ability to get forward. And you look back, and I'll use Monterey as an example. 
uh, you know, with Jesus Zavala sitting in front of that back four and having Mary Castillo on one side and looking to get forward and, you know, all, all uh, Humberto Suasso and all those guys, uh, such difference makers. But he usually likes to kind of pair a, a bigger striker with a more dynamic, um, moving, uh, attack-minded striker near him. And I think you can kind of say that with Sepulveda and Tito Villa, uh, the former uh, Cruz Azul and Pumas and Tigre striker, uh, who's a little bit long in the tooth, but still uh, in- incredibly tactically astute in that final third in terms of his finishing, his, his positioning. Uh, but you, you kind of look at the breakdown of this team that Victor Manuel Vucetich has right now in Caretro, and and you're looking at uh, Colombian, you're looking at U.S. internationals, you're looking at Argentines, you're looking at Brazilians. Um, it's 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 really a, a a very put together team in terms of ability, um, you know, dynamic attacking players. Uh, but right now, definitely not good enough uh, for what we've seen so far in Liga MX. With just you know two wins out of that first four, or what is it, first six games. Um, and coming off another disappointing result on the road at Cruz Azul, where they scored a goal, uh, but Cruz Azul ended up putting them away in the final minutes. Uh, I guess my other question uh, um, is sort of a zoom out a little bit. Um, out of the four, it, our, our listeners might not know, but it's four MLS teams playing four teams uh, from Mexico. Out of those four, who do you, whose chances do you like the best right now, and who do you think is in the worst position? Yeah, um, it's funny. I, I would say my, my gut feeling right now is LA Galaxy is in the best scenario. Uh, just because of kind of the ups and downs that Santos Laguna has had recently in terms of player movement as well as head coaching changes. Um, I, I think anytime you can get out from underneath and Bruce Arena does it again, he gets out underneath an incredibly difficult contract with Omar Gonzalez. Uh, he moves him, gets incredible amount of money for Janino at Tijuana, and then is able to convince Yale Van Damme and Ashley Cole and Nigel Young to come right now for kind of smaller contracts while recognizing Steven Gerrard's at the end of his contract at the end of the season. Um, based on experience alone, big game experience, I would say the LA Galaxy has the best opportunity. Uh, I, I would have said that Seattle has a great opportunity as well, but I think with Roman Torres' knee not close to being ready yet defensively um, and question marks about Obasame Martins and this move to China that's on the table, uh, that really hurts their chances in the two-legged affair, especially in that second leg at Club America. Um, but I think D.C. United and Real Salt Lake are in a very similar boat. Um, you know, for D.C. in particular, this whole Perry Kitchen thing, um, and, you know, still no announcement on Kitchen and where his next move is going to be, uh, leads me to believe that, that maybe the grass wasn't as green as he thought, or maybe his value wasn't as high as he was potentially thinking it could have been as he wanted to kind of test the market. Um, what does Nagel and Miyako and Acosta look like in game situations with Sarvas? Uh, what does the health of Bill Hamid look like short term and long term for this season? Um, and for RSL, I, th- there's just a ton of questions about that back line, especially the two center backs um, with Thomas and Olave really struggling last year and Aaron Mond being the most consistent player they had. Uh, there, there is rumors, and it sounds like it's getting closer, that a Ghanaian international, uh, Akaminko, Jerry Akaminko, could be signing with Real Salt Lake. He's with them right now. Uh, this kid, Sonny, that they have is represented Nigeria at the international level and grew up in Spain, and he's going to play alongside Beckerman. And then getting Yuramon Sissian back from Spartak Moscow and putting him with Burrito and Plata and Javier Morales. Um, I, I think both DC United and Real Salt Lake are, are going to be good in MLS this year. I, I just wonder if these games are coming too early uh, against teams that are now going to be seven games into the Liga MX season and fully fit, fully focused, and I think mentally and physically really prepared for this knockout round where MLS teams are going to struggle a little bit in, in terms of it happening so quickly. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree, especially looking at, like, with uh, C- Seattle and RSL having to play Club America and Tigres, that's, um, I remember on that last day of the group stage just being glad that it shook out like that. Um, <laughs> just trying to dodge, I mean, Club America, no one wants to have to play at the Azteca, and um, T Grace with the money that they have been throwing around, it's you know, 
it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, it it yeah. doesn't really even even by the gulf of the the two leagues, it's like that's that's like a galaxy kind of spending um, at a higher level. It just uh, it's kind of crazy. But you know, RSLs. Uh, you mentioned that front three with Morales. Uh, even if they can't defend that well, they're going to be awfully fun to watch <laughs> I think, this year. It'll be a lot of high. I mean. We're saying high-scoring games as if DC and RSL didn't have an insane game uh, last season. So maybe it'll be – I don't think Jeff Kassar wants it to be this way, but maybe it'll be like that uh, a little more often. Yeah, I I, I, I was a part of that, and that that was uh, that broadcast was gut-wrenching in the post-game to deal with uh, for Real Salt Lake because, you know, that, that game uh, at RFK and the way DC United came out flying, uh, you know, it, it – Definitely psychologically punished RSL a lot longer. But listen, I agree with you. Uh, and people that weren't paying attention to this last Mexico international against Senegal, what was it last week down in Florida? Mm-hmm. A majority of those Mexican international players were basically Tigres' starting 11. Um, I think it was eight of the guys uh, that featured in that match that playing significant minutes for Tigres right now. So uh, it, it's, it's a it's a pretty fascinating scenario right now for both of these teams, for DC and RSL. And again, uh, for as positive as we want to be, I think we've got to temper those expectations with a little bit of reality too. Um, and at a bare minimum, I, I don't think I've ever heard of an MLS coach being fired for uh, getting knocked out of CCL. So uh, it'll be an interesting build up next week, and hopefully we see a lot of good results and hopefully a similar run to what we saw from the Montreal Impact last year. Yeah, I mean that 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 kind of gives a. I would hope that every team takes some hope from that because uh, Montreal looked like the team that looked uh, like they had no real chance. They're disorganized. Um, They're having to roll with Cameron Porter uh, getting real minutes, and then look what happens uh, for him. So um, yeah. it, there's always there's always a shot in these things if if you just keep it together in the early stages. But over the years, MLS teams have not kept it together in that many early stages in these games. Yeah, and I think the silver lining, or uh, probably the negative silver lining in all of that conversation was don't play an artificial surface, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So the the last team we really haven't talked about is Seattle. So I just wanted to get your uh, thoughts, Brian, on do you think Seattle actually has a chance against Club America, or do you think they're going to get taken out pretty quickly? No, I, I think they do. Um, I, I, I like their chances, quite honestly, a lot more with Obafemi Martins in the starting 11. Um, and that, I think, drastically uh, hurts their chances. Um, and that's just the reality because, you know, it's hard to say outside of Robbie Keane, um, I, I don't think there's been a more dominant physical presence than Obafemi uh, in a lot of ways uh, since he joined Major League Soccer and um, I kind of joke around with Garth Lagerway every time I see him. Hey, is Obas for a new contract yet? Uh, because <laughs> I know it's just a, it's a fun way to get underneath his skin. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, the reality is, you know, we, we can call them mercenaries. We can call them financial assassins. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're always going to take care of your family and you're always going to protect your future. And if there's money on the table, you got to go for it. Um, so for Oba, I'm all for getting paid. It, it will be fascinating though. Um, and I said this earlier today on Sirius that Miko Jelovic, um, at West Ham is 34 years old and a second division team in China that spends $4 million to buy him out of his contract. What does that say in terms of what the value should be for Obafemi Martins and Major League Soccer? Uh, for me, I would say a bare minimum of $6 million. Uh, but kind of for all the conversations about China and money being spent right now, uh, it's not all sunshine and rainbows as Tim Cahill was bought out of his contract from Shenhua, or Shanghai Shenhua today, uh, the former New York Red Bulls man, after he just redid his deal in November. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see the trickle-down effect with the Chinese money coming in right now and the amount of players that they're paying for. Uh, but Sorry, I got caught off on a tangent. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, the reality is Nelson Valdez, uh, the Paraguayan internationals uh, can be a game changer. Clint Dempsey is Clint Dempsey. Jordan Morris is uh, hopefully going to be the impact player. We all hope that he's going to be, considering we've created a, uh, a mechanism to keep him in Major League <laughs> Soccer. Um, you know, and even Schitz was fantastic last year, and 
Javi Alonso is 100% healthy. So we'll see how it all turns out offensively. I, I still think that that knee injury to Roman Torres uh, is a devastating knee injury for the start of the season for Seattle. And we'll see how uh, Chad Marshall and Brad Evans and their relationship starts off early against a very potent attack from Club America. And that's another thing I wanted to ask about. In Here in D.C., we are uh, very used to young players being extremely hyped. Uh, and so do you think Jordan Morris actually has a chance to perform as well as his hype this early? Or do you think he's going to have a rougher beginning to the season and a more typical rookie learning curve? Um. You know, it's a tough question. It'll be interesting on two fronts. One, um, again, what does the Obafemi Martins effect look like, uh, considering I think if they were going to play a front three, uh, with Oba and Clint and Jordan, that, that's a really dynamic front three. Um, now if you say it's just Valdez and Morris and Clint, it's not as dynamic, but it's probably less competition for, uh, for Jordan to get on the field. Um, I, I think his level is incredibly high. I've been fortunate enough to call his games for the Pac-12 network for the past three years. I actually picked up the phone and I called my former teammate, Chris Henderson, as soon as the game was over. Uh, and I think it was his third or fourth game, Jordan Morris at Stanford. And I said, uh, well, I don't care what you do. You need to sign this kid. <laughs> he goes, yeah, no, we trust me. It'll be a few years, but we already got him. His dad's the surgeon for the team. Um, and so they, they were kind of laughing about that. Uh, but I think his level's really, really high. Um, he, he's got an honesty to his work ethic. Um, I, I think he can do some special stuff. You, you saw that just in the short amount of time he was with Werner Bremen. Uh, a couple of dicing moves that I think took Vine on fire uh, for his service to Pizarro uh, in one of the friendlies. Uh, but as always, as we continue to try to hype everybody up, and we saw it with Freddie Adu, and we see it virtually with every young player, that's an attack-minded goal scorer in MLS or U.S. soccer fronts. Um, how does he handle the physical load of games over the course of an incredibly long MLS season? Uh, and ultimately, what does his commitments to the under-23s and the U.S. men's national team look like? Because if you now say he was going from 20 games a season to potentially 60, maybe 80 games a season, uh, you could see kind of the standard throughout the course of the season, take a couple dips and uh, maybe a couple spikes throughout the year. So turning back to Karataro, there are a few guys that MLS fans are going to be familiar with. I think the, the the team's name first came to a lot of people's minds when Camilo went down there from yeah. Vancouver in a, a controversial transfer, to say the least. Uh, you mentioned two other guys, Jonathan Bornstein and Luis Gill are down there right now. I think Gil is cap-tied to your RSL, uh, so we probably won't see him, but do you think we'll see the other two? I know Bornstein's had some struggles, but we haven't really talked about Camilo tonight. Yeah, Camilo, as far as I was uh, made aware, Camilo's still kind of working his way back. I think he did his ACL um, a while ago. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was controversial. Carl Robinson wasn't happy about it. Uh, Carl Robinson got a, a huge amount of money, which ended up working out just fine for the Vancouver Whitecaps as, as they are one of the most, I think, aesthetically pleasing teams to watch in a lot of ways. Uh, and they do their business very similar to DC United, um, in terms of not necessarily going after, uh, the big name international guys that are, uh, spending a lot of time away from the team with national team duties. Um, but going through South America as opposed to what Benny and company have kind of done to, to restock through MLS. Um, you know, Camilo, I think in a lot of ways can be a difference maker. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, Victor Manuel Lucetich is able to kind of get him onto the field at some point in this tournament. Uh, Luis is cup tied as is Luis Silva down at Tigres. Uh, from their time at Real Salt Lake. Um, but uh, make no mistake about it, I, I don't think Luis Gill is going to have any loyalty whatsoever uh, when it comes to giving Victor Manuel Lucetich and uh, the Caretero players uh, all the insight in terms of how Jeff Kassar functions and how RSL functions. Is a, it, it wasn't a... Uh, it wasn't a, an easy or nice split. It wasn't uh, a horrific split by any means, but um, I, I think you saw, if you look at the numbers last year, Luis Gill uh, wasn't spending a lot of time on the field, uh, wasn't too happy about it, and 
I, I think in an ideal world, this is a great opportunity for the young man to take a huge step forward with a coach that's known historically in Victor Manuel's pitch of uh, developing players. Dunny, thanks for coming on the show again. Um, you've been great, as always. Uh, why don't you tell the few of our listeners who aren't already following you online where they can find you? <laughs> yeah, it's easy. On Twitter, uh, at Bumpy Pitch. Uh, the original winger is the website, Bumpy Pitch. Uh, you know, clothing side. And yeah, just jump around talking soccer ball as often as possible. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on the show. Everybody find us at blackandredunited.com. We are on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast, at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. As always, we accept love letters, we accept hate mail, and we accept advertising inquiries. Find us on iTunes, find us on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud. Tell a friend about us next time you're at the bar. So for Jason and Ben and thanking Dunny one more time, I'm Adam, and we'll talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason.